What is up, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Welcome, hello, shalom, bienvenue, bienvenidos, willkommen. What's going on? It always reminds me of that scene in Private Parts when uh, I think it's Jackie is talking before they do the uh, the, the word guessing game. Blank a doodle do. <laughs> That's such a good fucking movie. I should watch that. Blank a doodle do. All right, the next the next clue is blank willow. <laughs> Anyways, this is the QTR podcast where I plagiarize movies and pass them off as my own jokes. I'll be doing an hour of that, so look forward to it. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion, JM Bullion is my exclusive gold and silver provider. It is the only place that I buy my gold and silver bullion. I've been doing business with them for years now. They have done over 10 They've been in business for a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales, and I give them a 10 out of 10 in my book. Maybe that's what I was trying to say. Anyways, JM Bullion always turns around my orders very quickly, so if you're interested in purchasing gold or silver bullion, uh, that would be the place that I would recommend, not just because they support my podcast, but because I like doing business with them, and I really try not to associate my podcast with anybody that I don't like doing business with anyways, uh, which is why all of my patrons and, and supporters are friends of mine, um, because I know them, and I at least feel like I've vetted them as people, so I'm happy to recommend JM Bullion. For gold and silver bullion needs, you can always email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com with anything that you need. Tell her you're a QTR podcast listener. She will make sure that you get taken care of. Maybe you don't feel like dealing with the hassle of the website. She'll help you check inventory. She will get you the best deal if you tell her that the Q-Man sent you. So I want to shout out my friends at JM Bullion. That link is in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Doomberg. I just put up a fantastic interview with Doomberg on my Substack. If you haven't subscribed, my Substack is Fringe Finance. The link to that is in my podcast description. I update it almost daily, but I just did a great interview with Doomberg on why they see oil potentially going to $300 a barrel and uranium doubling or tripling from here. That interview is available on my Substack. You can subscribe to Doomberg Substack 100% free. That is in my podcast description. I love the guys over at Doomberg. This podcast also brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George Gammon teamed up with Lynn Alden, Brent Johnson, and Chris McIntosh to bring you advice on how to navigate the world of out-of-control central banks. And everybody knows George Gammon if you listen to my podcast. He is one of my absolute favorites. He's one of my go-to guys for learning about the inner workings of exactly how quantitative easing works. I can't recommend him or his platform enough. He has been a wonderful person to do business with. I'm happy to call him a friend. I love going over to read the Rebel Capitalist forums and their model portfolios. They do a live Q&A several times a week. All of that is available in my podcast description. George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. Thanks for supporting the podcast, buddy. We love you. This podcast is also brought to you by my homeboy, Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus over at the Steam Room. In fact, they have a new service called Trading the Post, which you could check out at tradingthepost.com. I don't have that script up here, so I have to apologize to them. But what I can tell you is I'm looking for it right now, and I don't want to pause the fucking thing because once I get going, I like to keep going. This podcast is brought to you by tradingthepost.com. It's the new service brought to you by Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. 
Trading the post is the name of the methodology created by Ron Friedman, who took his 20 years of trading experience, combined it with what he learned from Sang Lucci, and created a process-oriented, rules-based approach to options trading. Look, I don't know what any of that means. The point is, I love Sang Lucci. I think these guys understand the options market better than most people out there. I've known these guys for nearly a decade. I think they're honest people to do business with. Uh, and I trust that they know tape reading and options flow better than most people out there. So you can check out Lucci, Wall Street Jesus, Trading the Post, whatever you want. All those links are in my podcast description. Tell them Q-Man sent you, and they will make sure that you get hooked up with a free trial, no credit card, whatever the fuck you want. Just tell them Lucci, hey, Chris Iron said, I can have this, this, and this, and he's going to make sure you get it. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my buddy Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, and Camila Soul. I also want to thank some patrons that have signed up to support the podcast recently, like Daniel Richard, John Sturdivant, Benjamin Krog, Victor Ramirez, Steve Gould, Howard, John Roberts, John Roberts, David Driesen, Nomad Above and Beyond. Thank you so much. Brian Nemich, Brad Nesset, Zach Hansen, some people that have been with me for a little while, like Steve K, Stephen Boppel, J.K. Cunningham, you gotta have faith, and Cynthia Yeager. Thank you so much for your continued support. I also want to shout out the founding members of my Fringe Finance blog, Kashumba, Randy Carter, T. Gagiati, thank you, my friend, Jamie A. Farmer, and Harvest Moon Research. Thank you guys so much for supporting my Substack. Fringe Finance, the link to that is in my podcast description. You can sign up for free. You can read the diarrhea coming out of my brain almost on a daily basis instead of listening to it on a podcast once every seven days. With that being said, get ready to listen to it because seven days have passed and I got a lot of fucking things I want to talk about today. I want to first remind you that I'm not an investment advisor. I hold no licenses, no registrations with the SEC, with FINRA, with anybody. This is not financial advice. It's not a solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Generally, you shouldn't listen to what I have to say at all. And there is a three-drink minimum on the podcast, which is a, uh, you know, used to be a two-drink minimum. We moved it up to three drinks after inflation started happening. We thought maybe the three-drink minimum would be transitory. But I kind of secretly knew that the three-drink minimum wouldn't be transitory, just like I kind of knew that inflation wouldn't be transitory. And that certainly seems to be the case with what we saw this past week. Look at the headlines over this past week. All I did was put in the word inflation into Google News, and this is what turned up. These are the headlines that turned up. CNN, why inflation is a political nightmare for Biden. The Hill, voters are correct. Biden is to blame for inflation. USA Today, inflation surges to 31-year high. Axios, Manchin may delay Biden's social spending plan over inflation. Wall Street Journal, inflation and building back worse. (laughs) I like that one. Vox, Democrats have no plan to fight housing inflation. The weak, inflation is hitting young families hard. Yahoo Finance, inflation is wiping out wage increases for many workers. Uh, CNBC, U.S. consumer prices jump 6.2% in October, the biggest inflation surge in more than 40 years. And I want to talk about inflation right off the bat because it is the biggest, broadest, you know, uh, weighted blanket that is kind of falling down on the entire country all at once. This has the broadest reaching effect out of anything that I think that we can talk about. 
And if you listen to other Austrian-minded uh, economists and you know commentators, none of what I'm about to say is going to be news to you, although I may deliver it with a couple more curse words and maybe a little bit more caffeinated than other people. But I do want to talk about it because it's so fucking important what is going on, right? Now, over the last, like, couple of years, I've railed on the podcast about why inflation is such a nefarious uh, concept, right? It works in the background, inflation. Inflation is something that happens, okay? As Peter Schiff just said on his recent podcast, it is the most, or I think it was on Fox News or whatever, but he said it's the most regressive type of tax, which I thought was a great quote because people don't think about it as a tax. They don't think about it as being regressive, especially if you're one of the lobotomized sheep over at MSNBC. We'll talk about the article they wrote uh, this week in a second. But it is the most regressive form of attacks. And what makes it nefarious and really why it, it it's a key part of what makes monetary policy nefarious is because it works in the background. You know, I did this video on YouTube a while back called the weighted blanket theory. And the point of the theory was, you know, why is there so much social unrest? What are people so wound up about? And the argument I made was that people were wound up about inflation and they didn't even know it. And one of the examples that I made is, you know, if you are in the middle class or you're in the lower class and you're having a lot of trouble making ends meet, very small moves up in price have a very profound effect, okay? If you are a rich person, inflation isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world because housing, you know, the the price of financial assets winds up inflating as well. Uh, And so... In nominal terms, there's a lot of inflation. In real terms, it probably hits you less because you have the money to cover it. When you are on the poverty line or you are barely scraping by to make ends meet, the move in a paycheck, if your wages go up 2% and inflation is 4%, that's catastrophic. Okay, so if you were making $13 an hour and they bump you to $15 an hour because of inflation, but the real cost of living for you rises, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12% in a year, those are catastrophic changes for people that do not have the financial means to deal with them. And, you know, Schiff said in his last podcast, I don't want to regurgitate his whole podcast, but he made a great point. You know, the reason that it is the most regressive form of tax is because it disproportionately puts the boot on the neck of people that can least afford it. And until recently, when inflation became a big talking point, because now everybody's talking about it, because even the government's bullshit CPI numbers are showing that it's out of control, it would happen in the background. So the point I was trying to make before the CPI got all, you know, absolutely out of whack and people started to freak out uh, publicly about it, because really everybody takes their cues from the CPI number, which of course is gamed by hedonic adjustments and all kinds of nonsense. But now that it's baked into the CPI, it can officially become, you know, a mainstream talking point. But prior to that, the point that I was trying to make on this podcast talking or the video I did talking about the weighted blanket theory was that it's all happening in the background. Okay. So Schiff is right. It disproportionately affects those who can least afford it. And when you don't even understand that it's happening, 
you know, a year ago today, nobody was talking about inflation numbers. You know, it's just been over the last six months that it's become a mainstream talking point. People are just left confused. Sometimes people don't even notice. And I made the example of a guy that, you know, takes the change out of his ashtray in the morning to get his morning coffee. And he rolls up to Wawa one day. And, you know, the price of coffee's gone from $1.59 to $1.89 to $2.19 to $2.29, which nobody may notice. You know, if you're a millionaire, you don't notice that. You don't give a shit about. But if you're scraping the change off of your floor of your car and your car's ashtray to make your morning coffee every morning, and you get in one day and it's $2.29 and you think you have your $2.09 for your coffee and you're $0.20 cents short, and, you know, all you've been doing is working 40 hours a week doing manual labor, roofing or construction or plumbing or some shit to try to make ends meet and you can't even afford your fucking morning coffee anymore, you know, it's enough for somebody to blow a head gasket. And it was my contention over the summer that this is kind of what a lot of people were upset about. It didn't have so much to do with GameStop. It didn't have so much to do with democratizing short sellers, you know, or democratizing investing or blaming short sellers. Uh, It had to do with this inflationary tax that people were bearing the burden of that they didn't even know. Well, now that tax has gotten significantly worse, and it's a problem for the left. You know, I wrote an article this week in my blog called Fringe Finance, and uh, it was called The Two Real Reasons Democrats Lost Virginia, A Woke Postmortem. And the point of the article was that, you know, Virginia was lost, in my opinion, for two reasons. One was a you know reason of government overreach, and the other one was a reason of government underreach. And I'm going to explain some of the concepts that I wrote about in this article. But key to the article was the idea that you're not going to be, you know, academia is not going to be able to kind of unfuck the uh, heads of people that are suffering from inflation, regardless of what their political affiliation is. You know, the conclusion of my article was that no matter how, and this is what I wrote, no matter how long people have sworn their allegiance to the Democratic Party, there's always going to be a fault line where common sense usurps political affiliation. And one of the arguments that I make in this article is that when the cost of living is rising so much for the everyday mom and pop, that it doesn't matter, you know, what the Democratic Party tells them or how they try to spin it. You can't spin your way out of, uh, you know, burdening the middle and lower class with a cost of living that is rising 10% per year. Wages simply aren't rising that much. And no matter how much, you know, and Biden's going to look like an idiot because what's going to happen is he's going to have to be out there advocating for, you know, a $40 minimum wage (laughs) to keep up with the price of inflation, to keep up with the price of just living, which is only going to serve to prove that inflation is out of control, right? You wouldn't have to argue for a $40 minimum wage if the cost of living wasn't that, you know, wasn't that high. And what happens is the one, and I wrote about this too, like two weeks ago, the quality of life con, and I'll discuss it again briefly, but what winds up suffering is people's quality of life, right? If the cost of living is too high, And the delta between what you're earning and what it costs to live continues to widen. No matter how many 3% raises per year you get, if inflation's at 5%, your quality of life is deteriorating by that 2% difference every single year. 
and the quality of life declining is really what bears the brunt. That's where the bad shit from inflation goes. And you notice it very, 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 uh, you know, it happens in nuanced fashion, right? It's the difference between buying a large coffee every day and having to buy a small coffee because the small now costs what the large used to cost, right? You have to buy two boxes of cereal this week instead of one to make the same amount of cereal you used to buy from one box. Well, if you can't afford to buy two because the price has gone up, then you have to eat less cereal every day. And so not unlike the economy itself, which is just a series of trillions of transactions that happen every day, your quality of life is represented by, you know, trillions of these little nuanced uh, transactions and things that you go about doing during your day. And if you can shave off a little bit from each one of these things, right? If you can just, you know, take what used to be your large coffee and move it to a medium. If, you know, you can only eat a little bit, you know, if, you, if you're forced to eat a little bit less every day, if you're forced to use the dishwasher a little bit less because the water bill is too high, if your discretionary spending has to go down a little bit because costs have gone up, what is suffering in tiny little increments that are so small that you may not even notice them, what's suffering is your quality of life. And the quality of life for middle class and the lower class becomes this dumping ground for the Democrats now and some Republicans that are trying to explain away and spin inflation as a good thing. And this is what really caused me to beef with the Washington Post last week because some genius over there wrote an article basically saying that, let me read it here. Uh, Take, for example, an editorial that the Washington Post wrote a couple weeks ago urging Americans to lower their expectations when it comes to supply chain shortages. I swiftly rebutted this editorial in a piece that argued the left was trying to steal your quality of life by asking you to ignore that something is obviously amiss. Okay, so this article that was written by the Washington Post basically said don't rant about short-staffed stores and supply chain woes. And the article basically said, you know, uh, it's time for some new, more realistic expectations from the American consumer. Americans' expectations of speedy service and easy access to consumer products have been crushed. American consumers, their expectations pampered and catered to for decades are not accustomed to inconvenience. And basically the article goes on to argue that, hey, just ignore that your quality of life is suffering. That's basically the point of the article, which is why I wrote my response uh, called Transitory Shortages and Inflation Are Actually Your Quality of Life Being Stolen Right Before Your Eyes. Uh, And this is actually a free article on my uh, Fringe Finance uh, blog, so you can go on there and read this one for free. It's not behind a paywall. I would encourage you to read it. Um, But, you know, I said, look, it's a convenient argument for the left to make now. Uh, Oftentimes I make an, you know, anti-comfort argument about why it's important that we have recessions. Uh, You know, so she's right about us being comfortable about some things. But, uh, you know, because the left's policies all of a sudden are bringing on this discomfort, the narrative changes to let's all stop being so pampered all the time. Right. And 
actually it's the left's pushing of the idea of you know money printing to stave off recessions so that we aren't comfortable that is inadvertently circling back and causing the inflation problem so you know it's a huge big circle jerk mess that isn't going to stop until we force it to stop and until we stop and take a cold hard look at the consequences of what's going on. The Washington Post article says, rather than living constantly on the verge of throwing a fit and risking taking it out on overwhelmed servers, struggling shop owners or late arriving de delivery people, we do ourselves a favor by consciously lowering expectations. That's what the Washington Post wants you to do. They want you to lower your expectations. It's another way of saying, prepare for your quality of life to diminish. And that's it. When you can only eat, you know, a smaller bowl of cereal or you can only get the medium coffee. Hey, we're all making sacrifices here, right? All of a sudden, it's not about your comfort. But what they fail to understand is all that nonsense is the result of their policies that they're pushing. This stupid idea that we can pay off debt by taking on more debt. We can constantly monetize everything. The government has to be there to paper over the economy in a recession. People don't have to work in order to, you know, get money. People can just get money for free. All of these fallacies and stupid Keynesian ideas, they're like Keynesian mutant ideas now. They're modern monetary theory ideas. You know, they all lead back to the fact that you can't have a prosperous country without a good balance sheet and production and savings. And it's that simple. And no matter how much academic jargon you want to kind of wrap that in and try to make the argument otherwise, we always wind up back here at the same spot, which is quality of life is diminishing as a result of inflation. And now, you know, the Democrats are trying to spin that. So the article that I uh, wrote this week talking about why Virginia all of a sudden went red brings up the point that, you know, brings up my argument that inflation and the quality of life diminishing from inflation is something that cannot be spun, okay? It can't be kind of talked away because the consequences are very real to people like voters in Virginia, uh, and they see it on a daily basis. They're starting to see their quality of life diminish on a daily basis. And it doesn't matter who's president. You know, if people are seeing their quality of life diminish and they feel as though they're getting cornered and stuck, they're going to want to find a way out. And I think that's what happened in Virginia. This is what I wrote in my article this week on my blog, Fringe Finance. I wrote, while President Biden has been bragging about the number of jobs he has created, inflation in the country has been running rampant and the administration doesn't look like they are serious in trying to address the situation. Just yesterday, it was reported that Lael Brainerd was meeting with the White House and may potentially be the next pick to replace Jerome Powell. Brainerd is widely seen as being more dovish than Powell in terms of her stance on monetary policy. This type of think is exactly what I'm talking about when I say the White House is out of touch economically with the middle class, right? There's this disconnect between the consequences of their policies and what it means for people like the people in Virginia. I wrote this, as inflation and supply chain shortages ravage a country that hasn't seen anything like it in decades, all the Biden administration and its mainstream media counterparts are doing is trying to assure the American public that everything is okay when it clearly isn't. 
okay? It clearly isn't. And that is why I think the Democrats lost Virginia. So then I talk about this editorial. Take, for example, an editorial that asked people to lower their expectations. I swiftly rebutted it, as I said. Then I write, at the same time, the country is dealing with unprecedented inflation that to the middle class looks as though it has spun completely out of control. No matter how many times the government or the Federal Reserve claim that inflation is transitory, it doesn't change the fact that prices for the American middle class, like many people in Virginia, are rising faster than wages. And instead of addressing this and taking it seriously as these cost burdens significantly affect the well-being of American citizens, the government has continued to drag his feet and to try and assure the American public that the pain is only temporary, and basically that we're imagining things, right? So MSNBC put out this tweet last week that uh, I have to commend Zero Hedge because they archived it, and I think that MSNBC took it down. But MSNBC basically had an opinion piece uh, that said why the inflation we're seeing now is a good thing. Uh, And I want to read what Zero Hedge wrote about that. While millions of Americans are suffering from runaway galloping inflation everywhere, from the gas pump to the grocery store aisle, which of course affects low-income individuals the most, MSNBC has gone up to bat for the Biden administration, deploying their best pretzel logic to explain why all this inflation is literally, wait for it, good. The now-deleted tweet said, why the inflation we're seeing now is a good thing from MSNBC. Never mind that in September, a Kroger executive warned that grocery store prices were about to get nasty and the company would be passing along higher costs to the customer where it makes sense to do so, or that Nestle's CFO said blistering inflation would likely continue into next year, telling the crowd at a Barclays Consumer Staples Conference, if we talk of 2022, it is likely that input cost inflation will be higher next year than this year, or that the Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic admitted last month that inflation is not transitory, or that agricultural input costs from fertilizer to feed have gone through the roof, or labor shortages throughout the supply chain, including U.S. ports and the trucking industry, blah, 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 blah. I mean, they just list all these examples just showing that inflation is completely fucking out of control. Um, You know, and then you have MSNBC come around and say, oh, no, this is a good thing. It's like, I don't know. You may be able, like, certainly you're not going to get that past any conservatives, But there's a certain group, probably starting with the centrist Democrats, that you're not going to be able to get that around either, right? That's that fault line that I talked about earlier. When something is just so obviously amiss that it makes you break from your party affiliation and just say, hey, this is just wrong. Like, I'm sorry, Democrat, Republican, whatever. I got to go across the aisle on this one because I'm being fed a line of bullshit and I know it. Zero edges. Zero Hedge's uh, headline for this article is MSNBC goes full clown tard. <laughs> Gaslights that inflation is a good thing. Deletes tweet after angry backlash. And, uh, oh man, it's so funny. They list all these examples of people uh, just basically talking shit to them about this tweet. So this goes back to the point that I was making, Right. The point of noting this idiocy from both the Washington Post and MSNBC 
is to make the argument that there's some problems you can't explain away in the spin room, and inflation is one of them. And what did we get this week? We got proof that inflation is still exceeding expectations, which means this problem is really going to start hitting a fever pitch, the likes of which the Biden administration hasn't seen yet. I wrote this. The... Issues of inflation and supply chain logistics are very real and hit the American consumer head on. Even President Biden's proposed solutions for supply chain issues, which are basically to micromanage the economy even more and print more money, are far off base. The Biden administration knows nothing about economics and has completely lost touch with the middle class, which is what I believe why they lost Virginia. As I said earlier, the Democratic Party is going to have to get back in touch with the middle class that it claims to represent before midterms in the 2024 general election. You can't run on a base of defending the worker while paying people not to work. <laughs> it's spitting in the face of those who get up every morning and earn like the guy trying to fucking get the coffee money out of his ashtray in the morning. You know, what does that guy think when he fucking, you know, does roofing all summer long in the 100 degree heat in Arizona? And people are getting paid bonuses to stay home and not work. And then you got President Numbnuts gets up and he's like, well, I can't figure out why nobody wants to work. You can't advocate for empowering the middle class and then burst through their front door to try to tell them, A, when and how their children should be vaccinated, which is another huge problem we'll talk about, while at the same time ignoring that the price of their basic goods and groceries has gone up double-digit percentages over the last year in a lot of households. I mean, they're just not going to take you seriously. And this was the conclusion of my piece. I wrote, no matter how long people have sworn their allegiance to the Democratic Party, there's always going to be a fault line where common sense usurps political affiliation. For some people, the fault line is further left than President Biden has taken us so far. But for many people, like the ones in Virginia, I think it has already been crossed. Another thing I touched on there, you know, I think the government is not doing enough to deal with inflation, which would be the government underreach. But I also think that they're doing too much when it comes to COVID. It's like the world's worst pair trade. The government is doing too much. There's too much overreach where it doesn't need to be there when it comes to COVID response. And there's too much underreach when it comes to inflation. They're not doing enough. And by that, I mean enough fucking critical thinking to realize the negative consequences of the actions that they're taking. The COVID thing is a whole different story. I mean, people are just over it. It's comical that the Democrats want to come out and say, hey, we're, you know, for the people, we're for the middle class, we're, you know, we want the middle class tax cuts, it's the big corporations that are the problem, they're, you know, evil, they're evil profiteers, whatever. By the way, by the way, it's mandatory you take this vaccine, right? This is the uh, the pro-choice uh, lot, right? My body, my choice, except for when it comes to vaccines because they've decided that vaccines are good for you and that you should have them. Otherwise, you are going to get fired from your job. You can't go out. You're going to be publicly ridiculed. And so it's shit like that. And then this whole indoctrination of, you know, small children with critical race theory. You cannot be teaching kids that are, you know, in the single digits, nine-year-olds, six-year-olds, whatever, uh, you know, about critical race theory. Even if you, even if you don't, you know, entirely disagree with critical race theory, which is a different discussion in and of itself, but let's just say you're okay with it. It's not a concept that you should be talking to nine-year-olds about. I see nine-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds all the time. 
You know, I have family. I see, you know, cousins. I have people that are close to me that have kids all the time, you know, almost on a daily basis. I see them interact with their friends. I see them, you know, go out and play sporting events. I see them go to the playground. Uh, you know, kids of all different sizes, colors, shapes, ethnicities, never once, never once have I heard any kids aged six to nine bring up, you know, what color another kid was. Uh, you know, they don't even really talk about like, uh, you know, Things like, oh, that kid's bigger than other kids. I mean, you know, he's fat, he's skinny. I don't even hear stuff like that, you know? And I'm in an area that's extremely diverse. So if I go watch a family member's kid's soccer game and I'm looking at the soccer team and there's a couple of, you know, white kids, there's a couple of Indian kids, there's a couple of Asian kids, everybody likes soccer. So there's kids of all different ethnicities out there on all the teams. Nobody's talking about it. No one's talking about it. You know, other than the fact that, you know, a lot of the kids that come from overseas or have parents that come from overseas from anywhere, whether it's Europe or whether it's Africa or whether it's, you know, uh, often have parents that are really well versed in, in soccer, more so than I think a lot of the American kids. Um, and so they usually play exceptionally well. Uh, but I've never heard the kids uh, talk about anything having to do with race. It doesn't come up. They're too busy enjoying themselves and being kids and playing. And so to indoctrinate them with any type of shame or guilt, no matter what race you are and what race you're talking about, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, it just isn't something, you know, people forget that when you're born in the year 2015, you're a product of the year 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021. You're not a product of the year 1800, you know? So if you're just born over the last decade, I mean, there has nary been a topic that we have discussed in this country more than race, more than inequality, more than racism, more than equity, more than social justice. It comes up all the time. So you would think that anybody born in this day and age is already hyper aware, acutely aware of the issues of, you know, racism and racism's out there. I'm not saying it's not out there. Okay. I'm just saying that to indoctrinate otherwise innocent children who are of no matter what color, okay, black, white, Asian, Indian, whatever, European, Australian, doesn't matter to indoctrinate any of those children that are so young that, you know, they still don't know, uh, you know, how to multiply <laughs> with the concept that they're bearing the burden of, you know, their guilt from their ancestors or their, you know, oppression of their ancestors, I think is insane. I think it's crazy. Okay. And no matter what academic jargon you come up with to drum up a response to that, even if it holds water, say it holds water. Parents don't want their children, and it's not just, you know, white parents. It's parents of all races. There's a lot of parents out there that don't want their children being indoctrinated with that because they go to their kid's soccer game, and they see everybody getting along, and they don't see any issue with race, okay? It's just not the big, you know, giant elephant in the room that a lot of people want to make it to be. Now, 
Having said that, you know, my experience is limited to me. It's, you know, limited to, I've always brought up the uh, example of the gyms that I train at, you know, you, you just don't see any racism at MMA gyms, at jujitsu gyms. Maybe it's out there. I haven't seen it. I mean, I've trained in probably a dozen gyms all over the United States. Uh, people talk about other people's jujitsu. They talk about how great of a striker a guy is. They talk about this, that, and the other. Uh, oftentimes, you hear people, uh, you know, be complimentary uh, of other people. If somebody's from Russia, you know, you'll you'll hear people say, I don't want to fuck with that guy, you know, because Russians have great reputations as wrestlers. Uh, you know, if, it's, if a guy's Brazilian, uh, you'll say, all right, well, and he's got, you know, a strong, like, jiu-jitsu lineage. And I'll be like, oh, I don't want to fuck with the Brazilian guy. Like, he'll fuck me up, you know. So I've heard, I've heard people be complimentary, uh, but I've never heard anybody make any disparaging statements or really, nobody really discusses it. I mean, it's just not a thing in the jiu-jitsu community. You know, when you go and you roll with somebody, it doesn't matter uh, what race they are. And it doesn't matter, you know, another thing, jujitsu teaches you, it doesn't matter what they look like. You know, it could be the most unassuming person in the world, but they're oftentimes killers. And a lot of times you get guys that are jacked up and look like they're cock diesel, but they can't get out of their own way on the mats. So <laughs> if there's one thing like MMA and jujitsu teaches you, it's that race doesn't mean anything. Appearance doesn't mean anything. Looks don't mean anything. Uh, and you know, so maybe these parents just aren't seeing the big issue and maybe they just, you know, look, maybe there's parents, even centrist Democrats that say, you know, it's something I'll consider talking to my kids about, or maybe it's something they can study in college, but I don't want them indoctrinated with it when they're in elementary school. Like I just want them playing dodgeball. And I think a lot of that overreach in addition to just the general hysteria about COVID um, is probably what turned off a lot of voters in Virginia as well. So that's tying the inflation problem and the nefarious regressive tax of inflation in with uh, why I think the Virginia elections were lost by the Democrats. And I noted in my article, and I'll say now, that I think Virginia is a microcosm of what's to come uh, in 2022 and 2024, I think if the Democrats don't make it a fucking priority to understand the faults of what it is that they are putting into action here, that they are going to be in for another rude awakening a la Donald Trump. I mean, so far, let's be honest. I mean, let's be honest. What has the Biden administration done that's positive? I, I was talking to Peter Schiff and I said, you know, I heard somebody on Bill Maher say, oh, Afghanistan was the one thing they came up with. You know, and it was like, look, if you're citing that as the best thing the Biden administration's done so far, there's a huge problem because the guy's been in office for a year and we have prices skyrocketing. I mean, he's stumbling and mumbling and bumbling his way through town halls. He doesn't really seem to be coherent. Uh, you know, he's l fighting a losing war against OPEC, who's basically told him to, hey, go fucking fly a kite. Uh, you know, he's losing a uh, war with China, who has basically said, we're not committing to any of the same climate goals that you guys have. Uh, you know, and he's just kind of like a doormat. And I think when you become a doormat, you allow the people on the far left who have this wild agenda, much of which they can't even explain their reasoning by. You just kind of let them in. And, uh, and so that's kind of what we're seeing, I think, from the left right now. I just honestly don't know what they do about inflation at this point. You can't just indiscriminately raise rates 
as somebody commented on one of my blog posts, because then all hell is going to break loose. You know, a, a hundred basis point rise in rates right now would cause catastrophic shocks in the financial system, the likes of which would make 2008 look like a fucking picnic, I think, at this point. So how do we get out of the box that we're in? I have no idea. Uh, it's one of the reasons I enjoy owning gold. Uh, that's another thing I want to address. You know, Michael Saylor tweeted out the other day. Let me see if I can find the fucking tweet he put out. You know, you want to talk about, like, being irresponsible, okay, in my opinion. I think that, you know, look, if you want to own gold and you want to own Bitcoin, like my friend Lawrence Lepard, uh, you know, he owns both gold and Bitcoin. I think that's great. You know, Bitcoin certainly seems to be uh, in the midst of uh, being adopted uh, I think there's positives and negatives to that. I think intertwining it with our global financial system uh, may not be the smartest possible thing. I've commented on that in past podcasts. If you want to go back and listen to my last two or three podcasts, you'll get my gist on that. Um, get my gist on China and why I'm still skeptical of cryptocurrency. But put that aside. I've disclosed that I own, uh, I have a nominal exposure to Crypto, I own Silvergate, which is one of my favorite uh, you know, ways to play crypto. It's done exceptionally well here over the last six months. Uh, it's over $200 a share now. Uh, it was under $100 a share when I started buying it. Um, I think that you know, what Michael Saylor wrote a couple days ago on November 9th is just irresponsible. He wrote, if you believe in sound money, you need to sell your gold and buy Bitcoin. That's not a, um, you know, that's not a statement to tell people that, um, you know, you think Bitcoin can work as a hedge with gold. Um, that's Michael Saylor, who has 1.7 million followers, coming out and telling people to ignore 5,000 years worth of validity behind gold and dump that money into Bitcoin at, you know, its all-time highs. And you know what? I think it's possible to be a Bitcoin bull and also understand that a statement like that is dangerous. That's why I like Lawrence Lepard, you know, because he has exposure to crypto, but he understands that gold is there too. And I think if you gave him the choice between the two, he'd probably, if he could only own one or two, I'd be interested to know how many people that own both gold and Bitcoin, if you said he can only own one forever. How many people would pick gold and how many people would buy Bitcoin? But, you know, it's possible to be a Bitcoin bull and to be sensible. And to say something like, if you believe in sound money, you need to sell your gold and buy Bitcoin. Not, hey, maybe you should consider trimming some of your gold position to add more Bitcoin because it may have more near-term upside as an inflation hedge. But to make the statement that you need to sell your gold and buy Bitcoin just goes to show you the narrow hallway that these Bitcoin bulls are operating in. And, you know, even if Bitcoin goes to a million and gold goes to zero tomorrow, it's not going to change the fact that making a statement like that is irresponsible. I just don't think saying something like that is, you know, and the fact that Michael Saylor won't debate Peter Schiff is telling me a lot too. I know he'll say, I don't need to, I'm doing well. And hey, look, 
So far, Michael Saylor made some money for MicroStrategy. His uh, his plan is working so far, so we got to give credit where it's due. The only question is, when does his company cash out? And why do Bitcoin bulls keep measuring their success in U.S. dollars? I mean, I know, I know the whole point is, look, it's an inflation hedge, so you know it's showing in real time how the dollar is depreciating. But people are measuring it in dollars, I think, because eventually the plan is to cash out in dollars. Otherwise, they wouldn't even be making reference to dollars. They would just say things like, one Bitcoin is going to buy a house in 20 years from now, right? I'll be paying two Bitcoin for a, for a mansion in Stamford, Connecticut years from now. That would go to show that, hey, you think Bitcoin is going to become the standard, um, you know, you can measure it against whatever you want, but that's, you know, what you'll be transacting in. Um, and no, you'll be transacting in dollars. Uh, and the notion that even now with this thing growing kind of, you know, at a point where its adoption is becoming too big to fail, in my opinion, um, I think that regulation is going to be put in place ultimately so that, you know, regulators will be able to say that they didn't do nothing uh, in the future if the price does come down. And I think that, you know, capitulation in an asset like crypto, which is definitely, it's a risk asset, okay? It's a risk asset being bid up during a moment of, you know, basically hysterical euphoria. Not unlike a lot, you know, a lot of like Russell 2000 companies. Uh, my friend Kubico made a great argument the other day as to why he's short the Russell against, you know, some of his portfolio. I think the Russell's a great index to be short, in my opinion, not financial advice, obviously, but I think it's got the most garbage in it. I'm short that. I'm short uh, the ARC Innovation Fund, speaking of components that I think are worth a lot less than what they're being valued for. And so it's very, very easy to keep making these arguments, which, you know, now somebody saying that you have to sell your gold and buy Bitcoin, that sounds like it makes sense to some people. You know, the attitude and sentiment shift when people lose real money will be profound. It is very easy to make bullshit arguments now when everything is going up nonstop because anything works, anything flies. I said this about Kathy Wood and Ross Gerber, you know, justifying their Tesla price targets. And, you know, what happened was they came out bullish on Tesla. Tesla's price went through the roof. I happen to believe that some of that has to do with the options market uh, and not people buying it because of the fundamentals, proof of which could be seen last week. When uh, the bid fell out from underneath Tesla and it lost $150 billion worth of value in something like, you know, 12 hours. But we'll talk about that later. The point is that, you know, once Kathy Wood was perceived to be this great success, she was put on TV. And then you have to justify why your portfolio full of pre-revenue and, you know, unprofitable companies, mostly, some of them generate cash, I'm sure, but mostly, uh, you know, unprofitable, quote unquote, growth companies is excelling. She goes on TV, makes some kind of statement, you know, that growth is the future and value is dead or some shit like that, whatever. Then that statement goes back into the heads of speculative investors, which, you know, starts to turn a flywheel of people chasing momentum in overvalued crap. Okay, and that's pretty much how the cycle works. That's why a statement like sailors, if you believe in sound money, you need to sell your gold and buy Bitcoin plays now. That's why that works now, because Bitcoin is going up, right? 
All of this is happening against a backdrop of unprecedented monetary stimulus where we are creating such an enormous inflation problem that the public is starting to notice, okay? Even the people that are pro-MMT are starting to notice. Even the people that defend democratic policies are starting to notice, like Manchin is a perfect example. You know, they're starting to say, hey, something's going to break here. We have to, like, back off the gas pedal a little bit. The point I'm trying to make is that when the foundation of it all changes, when the market breaks, right, and I don't know what's going to cause it, but at some point, rates are going to have to go up. At some point, you know, the market is going to have to move lower. Either that or the dollar will get destroyed, which will in and of itself be an enormous story, which will, you know, spin up the flywheel of hyperinflation possibly. But at some point, something is going to break somewhere in this equation. And sentiment is going to change significantly. And this is something, you know, look, I've been talking to Bill Fleckenstein about this for years. The psychological confidence break in the Fed, right? And people are going to look at statements like, if you believe in sound money, you need to sell your gold and buy Bitcoin in a very different light when all hell is breaking loose than right now. People will look at statements like growth is the only way to make money and value is dead in a very different light than they're looking at them now. And I truly believe that we are on the precipice of a relatively large sentiment shift. This is why, uh, you know, just a couple of days ago, I wrote an article called Staring Down the Barrel of a NASDAQ Crash Without Even Knowing It. I talked about this on my last podcast, but the gist is like, Here are all the things lining up behind the curtain that eventually could pop out and cause a crash in the NASDAQ that really we we aren't prepared for. And when the NASDAQ goes, everything goes because the NASDAQ is speculation. There's, you know, and crypto too. I mean, it's speculation. There's leverage. It's going to be a disaster when it goes. And it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. You know, Tesla is a $1.2 trillion company that traded like a goddamn penny stock last week because Elon Musk suggested he might go out and sell shares, which it turns out he did, right? So all of a sudden, when a real offer comes in to sell, all of a sudden, Tesla gets demolished, right? It was down 11% in one day. I mean, it's not some, you know, super thin company. They have, you know, some of the uh, outstanding shares are tightly held, But the float isn't, you know, 500,000 shares. There's a lot of it being transacted. But it plays a little bit into the point I was making about Tesla and about the NASDAQ that perhaps some of it is an air pocket that has been caused by people weaponizing options. And that when a real seller comes in, we might see exactly, as Buffett would say, who's swimming naked, right? That would be the ultimate tide going out. But I tell you what. Tesla being down 11% in a day certainly puckered up the butthole of a lot of people who the day prior at 1200 were saying, oh, it's going to go to $2 trillion valuation because value's dead and growth is the only way to make money. And Elon Musk, you know, put a chip in a pig's brain. It's, <laughs> you know, that shit plays now. People are buying the dip again. Okay, it's back up to 1100 at the end of the week this week. It plays now, but it's not always going to play. And it's just going to take the tiniest, you know, waterfall 
in the wrong direction to wipe out a lot of market participants that have come into the market of late. I mean, think about coming into the market over the last six months with a Schiller PE of 38 to 40 at a time where speculation, we've never seen speculation like this. Essentially, in my article, I argue, you know, this is 1999 all over again, as my friend uh, on Twitter, Rosemont Seneca, has said. I think he's 100% right. Imagine the people that have come into the market over the last six months and have adopted adopted the buy the fucking dip mentality, right? I was talking to my barber again yesterday uh, who has made money on Shiba Inu. The guy said that, you know, was talking to me about Shiba Inu. And he kept saying, like, all you do is you just buy the dip. It goes red, you buy the dip because you get more bang for your buck then, you know? It's like, all right, that's a great argument until the dip keeps going. And you keep buying, but it keeps dipping. And then all of a sudden, you have nothing left to buy with. And then the dip keeps happening. And then all of a sudden, you're forced to sell at lower prices. And it's not just in Shiba Inu. You know, it'll be in crypto because there's a lot of leverage there, but it'll be in a lot of garbage stocks too. It'll be in equities. There will be a deleveraging at some point. And it will be nasty. And there will be contagion across asset classes. That is a certainty. It is a guarantee It will happen again. The setup for that looks more and more like it is likely to happen, you know, sooner rather than later. The Fed has just announced a taper. Inflation is running completely out of control and we have no way to stop it because we can't raise rates, right? So it's like like we're in this hallway with all these doors that we can go in and none of them are opening. You know, all of them are locked. Because if we go through the door of raising rates to stop inflation, equities crash. We see a massive systemic financial crash. If we print more money, if we go in through the door where you print more dollars and try to monetize the debt and hope that we can, you know, generate enough productivity to make it all worthwhile, then the dollar becomes useless, you know? And so at some point, I mean, I guess when you walk through that door, there, there might be an argument for crypto. Maybe. Because the chickens technically never come home to roost. But then the question is, you know, are you going to be making nominal gains? I think <laughs> I think when the sentiment shift happens, I think people are going to turn to gold. I think people will look at crypto and will look at gold. And I think there will be a rotation trade out of crypto and into gold. There will come a point, okay? Crypto is inherently more riskier than gold. Just by virtue of the fact that there's, you know, no commodity use for it and it doesn't tangibly exist. Let's just say that. A lot of people make the, you know, oh, crypto is actually less risky than gold because, hey, listen, anything that you can lose 100% of when the power goes out is riskier than gold. End of story. Okay. There will be a point. Speaking of fault lines, there is a fault line with, I'm sure, every crypto investor that they will cross because a lot of these people are well-versed in understanding exactly why Keynesian economics and modern monetary theory are flawed to begin with. So they understand the problem. I like a lot of the crypto people. A lot of them fucking get it. I've said before, right problem may not be the right solution. It's definitely not the right solution to go out and tell people to sell all their gold to buy Bitcoin. That's just insanity. I mean, I don't know what fucking planet Michael Saylor is on. I don't really understand what this guy does all day either, too, besides sit around on Twitter. I mean, do you have a company to run? Like, what, you know, do you basically just spend your time doing Bitcoin conferences? I don't understand. Whatever. Fine. Michael Saylor, world's best Bitcoin influencer. Great title if you want it. So there will be a point. When somebody crosses, when we cross the fault line where crypto investors are going to look at the idea of 
you know, the monetary system being flawed. They're going to look at Bitcoin. They're going to look at gold. And there will be a risk threshold where they will want to move from crypto to gold. It may be very far away. It may be 10 years, 20 years away. Maybe tomorrow. I don't know. It's all psychological. And it depends on how quickly this flywheel of just insanity starts to spin up. But there is a line there. And there is a possibility for a rotation trade from crypto to gold. I think because a lot of the money that would be pouring into gold now has gone to crypto. And so it's only fair to think that at some point, you know, that ratio could swing in the other direction. And I think when that happens, I think gold's $5,000 easily. And, uh, and then we're really going to see some shit. You know, that's when I will be selling a little bit of my gold position. Because there will be a hysteria, I think, rotating back into gold and silver from crypto. I mean, there will be a hysteria, I think. I mean, I, I really do. I think that there will be a, an oh shit moment with crypto investors. You know, how could we not have known? You know, how could we have not seen this coming? You know, right now the sentiment is buy every dip, whatever. At some point, the liquidity is going to dry up. It's just math. It's just math, right? At some point, the liquidity dries up. At some point, sentiment peaks. I don't know when. I thought maybe it was at 56,000. I did an arg- uh, a video about it in February this year, talking about Tesla and Bitcoin. I thought they were both, you know, the anatomy of bubbles bursting, it was called. I thought they were both at their peaks. But whatever. It's okay. They may go higher. At some point, everything hits its all-time high. Sentiment prices at some point everything hits its all-time high and at some point assets make an all-time high and they never go they never get back to it whether it's bitcoin sentiment or whether it's the nominal price of bitcoin at some point it will hit a point that it will never return to i don't know when and how that's going to happen but i know that i would want to own gold also and that's why i do own gold i think As I said, I'll be a seller into the hysteria because I think what'll happen is, you know, gold should appropriately probably be priced at three or four thousand. And I think there's going to be a hysteria going back into gold and silver that's going to push it, you know, way higher than it should be at the time. I don't know. Five thousand, seventy five hundred. Who knows? You know, guys like Jim Rickards make the case for fifteen, twenty thousand dollar gold. If you're talking about, you know, a great monetary reset and. Um, you know, applying a gold standard again, a whole nother concept that I think is possible. You go back and read some of the stuff I've written about the Chinese Yuan. Lots of ways to arrive at gold going up. But in that hysteria, the crypto to gold rotation trade, which I think could very likely happen, um, that's where I will lighten up on some of my position and will probably still hold a core position in gold and silver or gold and silver equities and miners uh, like I've always done. So I think that that is... Not just a possibility, I think it is an inevitability. And do me a favor, if you're a Bitcoin bull and you think it is a non-sensible thing to do to, for Michael Saylor to come out and say, sell all your gold to buy Bitcoin, show me that there's some sanity in the world. And, and you know, comment to him that, hey, you can be a Bitcoin bull without suggesting people sell all their gold. Because I think that's just insane, you know? In addition to the stupidity of using the past performance is not indicative of future results argument that Bitcoin bulls always use. Well, it's gone up X amount over X amount of time versus gold, whatever. Okay, fine. In addition to that, what's like the other basic like, you know, uh, Charles Schwab 
financial piece of advice you always get from some like dickhead at like, you know, I'm a, I'm a certified wealth planner. Oh, uh, you know, like, what do they always tell you? They always say diversify, right? And what Michael Saylor's telling you is don't diversify. Now, I think diversification takes on a little bit of a different meaning, getting out of the dollar, getting out of dollar denominated assets, et cetera, et cetera. I think diversification is extremely important. Uh, I think that the way most money managers think about diversification, just splitting money between stocks and bonds is wrong. But I think diversification as a principle is very important. And I think most people would agree that past performance is not indicative of future results and the importance of diversification are two like pretty simple, basic tenets that most investors, no matter where you are, are going to get behind, right? If you want to like, if you want to eliminate risk or curb risk, those are, you know, that's pretty much how you do it. Keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future results. And keep in mind that you may want to split your money up. So in case one thing goes tits up, you don't wind up losing all your money. And Michael Saylor is telling you the exact opposite. And I think that's extremely irresponsible. And I would love to see some Bitcoin bulls say the same thing, you know, because it's the same mission for all of us, right? Which is we want to stop the inequality caused by the central banking system, which is what brings on the inflation. That is what's hampering people's quality of life. That's why I talk, right? I want people to know, hey, your quality of life is getting stolen out from underneath you and you may not even know it because while you're busy going to work for a living and fucking, you know, plumbing, you don't have time to understand how the macroeconomic system works. And I totally understand that. I want to see some Bitcoin bulls come out and say, yeah, you know what? We're fighting for the same thing. We want to empower the guy who is uh, experiencing the negative consequences of monetary policy But let's also remember some of the basic tenets here and stay diversified to eliminate risk. Because I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if you encourage everybody to, you know, mortgage their house and all this shit to, you know, put money in Bitcoin and the thing takes a 50% drawdown, even if it then goes up 200% after that, but if it takes a 50% drawdown, you know, that's a fever pitch that a lot of people can't handle. They're going to be forced to capitulate. They're going to be forced to sell and they're going to take huge losses because they were allocated in a way from the get-go that they shouldn't have been to begin with. All right, fools, if you want more, check out my blog. It is called Fringe Finance. The link is in my podcast description. I write on it almost daily. I can't tell you how much I appreciate my patrons. Thank you so much for people that continue to support this podcast. You are the reason that I do what I do. But for right now, I got shit to do today, so I am out. Peace.